You ever wonder where God is in Michigan in February? (laughs) Do you ever think sometimes maybe he goes to Arizona or Florida for a while and he kind of comes back when the sun returns? I'm grateful we had a little bit of sun this weekend. We may have some more sun uh, coming up this week. That's a blessing. But I will say that February, more than any other month in the calendar, feels spiritually dark to me. It's not literally the darkest month, at least not usually. Occasionally it is. Usually that honor belongs to either December or to January. But there's something about February that feels spiritually dark. It feels like the spiritual warfare ramps up. It feels like there's an added level of discouragement or depression, uh, of darkness. There can be just an ongoing sense, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the accumulated literal darkness of December and January that by the time you get to February, we're tired. I don't know if it's the snow, which hasn't been too bad this year. I don't know if it's the distance from Christmas and Easter, if just sort of in the middle of February it feels like, uh, well, we're not really at Christmas and we're not yet at Easter. I don't know what it is, but February feels like spiritually the most difficult of months. And in the midst of the darkness, you can ask the question, where's God? Like, is he really, is he on vacation? Will he kind of come back with the sun? Where is the Lord in all of this? Now, of course, we know by faith God didn't go anywhere. He doesn't go anywhere in February. In fact, I would argue, I think God's actually more active in February than most other months. Because what do we know about God except for the fact that he's especially at work in the valleys and he's especially at work in the darkness. So it must be true that if we are feeling the discouragement, the despair, the difficulty of the darkness of February... By faith, God must be at work. But the question is, why are we not seeing him? Why are we not experiencing him? Well, I feel like nothing in God's kingdom is by accident. And so when I looked at our passage this week and I saw that the Lord had arranged for us to have communion, and as I began to kind of pray, Lord, what do you want to say to us this morning from your word? I think what the Lord wants to give us this morning is some understanding as to why perhaps in February we can have a hard time feeling his presence and what we can do to prepare ourselves as this month begins for a month that might normally otherwise feel full of darkness and discouragement, despair and desperation. So let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, and we want to think together about how we can see God more clearly in the midst of the darkness of February. Matthew 21, in the church Bibles, that's page 802. These are the Bibles in the rack in front of you. If you'd like to borrow a Bible and turn to page 802, we would love that. That would be very honoring to us. Matthew 21 Now, what we heard read this morning was the first half of the chapter. And if you were listening, it probably sounded like Palm Sunday sort of passage. And that's because it is the Matthew version of Palm Sunday. We're not going to be covering what you heard read this morning in the sermon. That's because we're going to save that part of the passage for Palm Sunday. 
One of the blessings of being in a gospel near Easter time is you get to line up Easter now with Easter in the text. But one of the downsides to doing that is because Palm Sunday and so many things happened that last week, in order to do everything in their proper time, you'd have to have sermons on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then Easter Sunday. Since we're not doing that, we're going to save this passage for Palm Sunday. But I wanted us to read it together or hear it read so that we would not lose the context. And we're going to jump into verses 23 to 27, which comes right after the passages that were read for us this morning. So Matthew 21, verses 23 to 27. Page 802. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven? or of human origin. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, well, we are afraid of the people, they all, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. The chief priests and the elders come to Jesus and they ask two questions. Who gave you this authority? Where did you get this authority? And by what authority are you doing these things? The word for authority means the right to command, to control, the ability to exercise power, to be in charge. And the chief priests and the elders want to know, Jesus, where are you getting the power to do these things? You see, God is at work in Jesus, but they can't see it. God is at work partly because Jesus is God, and so he has his own authority. Because he is fully God, Jesus has authority within himself to do and say the things he is doing and saying. But Jesus is also sent by God the Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit's power, Jesus is doing and saying amazing things. And they want to know, how are you doing this stuff? Where is this coming from? Effectively, what they're asking is, where is God? It seems like God should have something to do with this, but they can't see God in what's going on with Jesus. It's like it's February for the chief priests and the elders. And in the midst of the darkness and the despair and the spiritual discouragement, they're wondering, where is God at work? He is at work, but they can't see him. And in their ability, inability to see God at work, there's a helpful clue for us to understand why we sometimes don't see God at work. So they want to know, where'd you get this authority from? 
Now the text tells us they ask Jesus this question while he's teaching, but they're not asking about his teaching. That may feel like a minor point, but I think it's important. He's teaching in the temple courts because as we heard earlier, Palm Sunday, he's entered into Jerusalem. Jesus is going day after day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, etc., into the temple courts. And he is teaching people, but he's doing more than teaching. But during the teaching time, they ask him a question, not about his teaching, but about what he's doing. Because it says in verse 23, by what authority are you doing these things? They don't ask, by what authority are you teaching these things or saying these things? So they're not referring to his teaching. What they're referring to is what's going on in verse 14 in this same chapter. So just glance over to the other column, verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. So Jesus is doing multiple things in the temple. He's doing miraculous healings, and he's also teaching. During one of the teaching times, the chief priests and the elders come to Jesus. They raise their hand like, we got a question. How are you doing those things? By whose authority? Where is God in the midst of what's going on here? And they are referring to the miracles of healing that everybody's getting to see. Now, although they're asking about his authority with regard to the healing, they should have been asking about his authority with regard to the teaching. What do I mean by that? Well, the word authority is an important word in Matthew's gospel. We say it almost every week at the end of our services when we recite our benediction from Matthew 28, where Jesus announced all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Matthew's gospel closes with an announcement that Jesus has all authority. He has all power. He has the right to exercise all power on, in heaven and on earth. The word authority is in our passage here four times in these verses. It also makes another appearance or several other appearances in the gospel of Matthew. And I want to show those to you, but to do that, we're going to have to flip some pages. So I'd like you to turn back uh, in Matthew's gospel, and we're turning backwards. So to chapter 20, 19, 18, 17, 16, 15. And in none of those chapters do we find the word authority. 14, 13, 12, 11. And then we get back to chapter 10. And we find the word authority is important word in chapters 10, 9, 8, and 7. So we want to look at them sort of in reverse order. In chapter 10, verse 1, so this is page 790, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them what? Authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. Jesus authorizes the 12 disciples to do the same things he was doing in the temple courts during Holy Week. They're able to go out and do miraculous healings and to cast out demons. They have the authority to do those things. Turn back to chapter 9. 
At the beginning of chapter 9, there is a man who is paralyzed and he's lowered through a roof by some friends who want him to experience healing. And Jesus heals the man. He tells him to take up his mat and walk. And Jesus' point is he wants people to know that the Son of Man, namely Jesus, has authority to forgive sins and to heal people. So Matthew 9, Jesus has the authority to do these sorts of miraculous things. Matthew chapter 8. In the middle of Matthew 8, a centurion comes to Jesus and says, my servant is sick. Will you help heal him? Miraculously, will you use God's power to bless this person? And Jesus says, yes, I will. And Jesus gets up to go with the centurion. And the centurion says, you don't have to go anywhere. He's like, I too am a man under authority. I get how authority works. I get to just command people and they do what I tell them to do. If that's how the army works, how much more can you, Jesus, just simply say the word because you have authority and it will be done. Well, Jesus is pleasantly surprised to say the least that this non-Jewish man has such faith to be able to recognize that Jesus has authority to heal from a distance. So in Matthew 10, Jesus has authority to heal. Matthew 9, the authority to heal. Matthew 8, the authority to heal, to do the miraculous things that were happening in Matthew 21. But if we back up one more chapter to Matthew 7, we find the very first use of the word authority in the Gospel of Matthew. This important word that Matthew's going to end his Gospel with the very first time it's introduced, it doesn't have anything to do with miraculous healings. It comes at the end of chapter 7 in Matthew's closing comment on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is teaching what we know of as the Sermon on the Mount. When that teaching closes, verses 28 and 29 of Matthew 7, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had what? Authority and not as their teachers of the law. And you get the sense from the way Matthew has laid out his gospel that if you don't recognize Jesus' authority in his teaching, you're going to miss Jesus' authority to heal. That understanding Jesus' authority in what he says is a precursor to be able to understand God's work in Jesus in casting out demons and miraculously healing sickness. That the authority begins with the teaching and then moves to the miracles. Well, Jesus makes that even more explicit in our passage because when they come and ask him about the authority about the miracles, when they should have been paying attention to the authority about the teaching, Jesus says, let me ask you a question about John the Baptist. Now Jesus is referring now to something even earlier in Matthew's gospel. So if you're still in chapter 7, we're turning back a couple of more chapters all the way back to Matthew 3. Matthew 3, page 784 this is back before Jesus even begins his public ministry during the time of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist did no miracles. 
He never did any miracles. But in Matthew 3, John the Baptist comes on the scene to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. This is what Jesus is referring to. Let's remind ourselves what happened in Matthew 3. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John was given a message of repentance. And in order to prepare the way for people to be able to experience the fullness of God in Jesus, John was sent to declare to all people, we've got to repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That people all fall short of what God wants for them. And so it says that people of every different kind, every different background, every different age, every different socioeconomic standing, they all went out to John because God was at work in John in the declaration that we, they needed to repent. And so people from all over Israel went to John confessing their sins, being baptized as a way of repenting and saying to God that they were sorry for the way they had failed the Lord. Everybody came to be baptized except one group. Verse seven. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these are the chief priests, these are the elders from our passage, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do, you not, and do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The religious leaders came and they watched, but they didn't participate. They refused to repent. They refused to acknowledge they were there. And you can picture it in your mind saying, yes, good. We're glad that all of these sinners have come for repentance. But what they failed to realize is that they needed to repent as well. And so John announced, why do you think you're okay? Why do you think you haven't failed to do what you're supposed to do? And so he announces to them, you too need repentance. You too need to confess your sins and be baptized but they simply come as observers and refuse to participate. And so John says, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
John is saying, look, if you won't confess and repent, you're going to miss when the Messiah comes. You're going to miss the Holy Spirit at work in Jesus. Because right now I'm doing this for repentance. He's going to come in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to do things that you have never even imagined happening. Well, that's the background. And so we go back now to Matthew 21. So turn back to Matthew 21 with me. The group that refused to repent, now we turn multiple years later to Matthew 21, and they're struggling to see the Holy Spirit with Jesus. They're asking the question, where is God? And the answer is, because you didn't participate in repentance, you're not able to see God at work in Jesus. But in Jesus' mercy and grace, he's going to give them one more chance. Now this is his last week on earth. But still, he wants everyone everywhere to repent. And so this group that has been sitting on the sidelines, this group that has been secure in their self-righteousness, this group that thinks, I don't have anything I got to confess for. Everybody else needs to, but we're fine. We're the religious leaders. This group cannot see God. And Jesus knows why they can't see God. And so he asks them a question. And just like with the rich young ruler, where Jesus is having this discussion, this guy's like, oh yeah, I do all this, I do all this. I'll do. Finally, Jesus is like, let's just get to the heart of the matter. Go sell all your possessions. Well, now all of a sudden, the rich young ruler is like, well, I, I, I don't think I can do that. Jesus does the same here, trying to get to the heart of the matter. He asks them a question in which there's no way to answer the question without acknowledging that they need to confess. Watch what Jesus does. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Meaning, did God send John? Was God at work in John? Or was this something that a human dreamed up? Now, if they say John's baptism is from God, what's going to be the response? Well, why didn't you do it? You need to confess that you didn't obey like you missed what God was doing. There's your sin. If John's baptism was from God, your sin is you didn't participate. What if the answer is John's baptism was simply a human idea? Well, then Jesus would say to them, well, then why didn't you stand up and try to stop him? If this was not from God, then it's false prophecy. If John was claiming to be from God and wasn't from God, why didn't you resist him the way you've been resisting me? And the answer is because they were afraid of the people. This is people-pleasing. They had made an idol out of the people, and so they would rather simply not say anything. And so Jesus has got them in the corner saying, look, either response is going to show that you need to confess your sins. That's the point. And he's doing that because even at this last moment, if they're willing to confess and repent, if they're willing to acknowledge that they need forgiveness from God, then they'll be able to see God at work in Jesus. But they go away and have a discussion. And they come back with the one answer 
that will not help them? And the answer is, we don't know. They refuse to engage. And so Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Because they wouldn't confess and repent. Jesus says, it would be useless for me to tell you that God's at work. You can't see him. Without repentance, no one will see God. So what does that have to do with us in Grand Rapids, Michigan in February 2024? God is here and he's at work. Every month of every year, everywhere. Especially in the valley. Especially during difficult times. The problem with February is it's full of darkness and deception. And in the darkness, what Satan does is convince us that we don't have anything we need to repent of. The reason why February can be so full of spiritual warfare is during the darkness, we start thinking, well, how come I don't get to go away where it's sunny and warm? How come I don't get to do that? We get frustrated with other people. Why aren't they doing? They could make my life easier if they would just do these things. We get focused on how everybody else could do stuff that we need done for us instead of realizing where we have fallen short. And Jesus says, that's why you're missing him. God's at work. God's probably more at work in February than many other months. But we're missing it unless we confess and repent. And so I think the Lord has set up this time for us to be able to do this. As February gets started, we can either go into the month of February thinking, Man, I'm frustrated with this person. I wish this would happen. Why can't they do this? Why is that friend doing this? Why is that person at work doing that? Why don't I get to have that? Why can't this be better for me? And if we do, we will miss God at work all month long. Or we can go into February and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, I've fallen short. When we do that, then we'll see God at work. And we'll see Jesus who has all authority and power. So that's why I believe the Lord lined up communion for us to be able to have communion this morning. Because what we do before we take communion is we confess our sins. Now we've got some people that are going to help us serve communion. It always looks when they get up like a whole bunch of people are angry and are leaving. (laughs) They might be angry and they might be leaving. But most of them are going to the back to help us because they've been uh, gracious enough to help us serve communion. But we're not going to see them for a little bit because we've got some more stuff we're going to do here. Communion is a time in which we are to get right with the Lord. It represents Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to forgive our sins. But in order for that to be effective, we first have to acknowledge that we have some sins that need to be forgiven. Jesus' authority began in Matthew's gospel with the Sermon on the Mount. If you see Jesus' authority in the Sermon on the Mount, then you're ready to see Jesus doing miraculous things in 8, 9, 10, and so on. So what we're going to do is we're going to just take a little bit of time, 
and we're going to work through the Sermon on the Mount. I've just got some questions that are going to be on the screen here that are sort of inspired by the Sermon on the Mount. Teachings that Jesus gave us, and we just want to honestly ask ourselves, not for the person next to us, not for the person that's been bothering us all week, not for anybody other than ourselves, is there anything here from this list that we need to confess to the Lord? And when you see it, we just want in your own heart to say, Lord, that's me. Forgive me, I'm sorry. Sermon on the Mount's too long to go through all of it, so we're just going to take some selected portions, and I'm going to ask you some questions, you and me both, and we're going to try to work through this. If at any point the Spirit brings any level of conviction, just simply say, Lord, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Would you forgive me? All right, you ready? Jesus says as he opens the Spirit, or sorry, as he opens the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so the question we want to ask ourselves is, have we struggled to humble ourselves and acknowledge that we have sins to repent of? Have we been busy looking at everybody else and ignoring the things we are doing that fall short of what God wants for us? Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Have we been trying to exercise power to bring about what we want to have happen? Is there a situation in our lives where we have been taking matters into our own hands, trying to force something without acknowledging that the Lord may not want this? One of the problems when the darkness sets in is we want to rage against the darkness. We want to fight against it. We want to fix things. Have we been taking matters into our own hands instead of recognizing that Jesus said, blessed are the meek, those who leave things up to God? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Have we chosen harshness and demanding excellence instead of showing mercy to others for their failings? Again, when things aren't going well, when it's a tough month, when you're feeling yourself discouraged, it's easy to start lashing out at everybody else. If my child would just behave, if this coworker would just do what they were asked to do, then my life would be better. God said, that's not what I asked for from you. What he's asked for from you and I is mercy. Have we been merciful to those around us? Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Have we been hiding our lights, not letting others know that we love Jesus? Maybe you can think of a situation in which you're like, I probably should have said something. I probably should have reached out to someone in love for Jesus' sake. We all do it. This is our chance simply to acknowledge that to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I fell short. I'm sorry. Jesus says to be angry with another is to commit murder in our hearts. Do we have anger we need to confess to the Lord? Did we find ourselves this past Friday on the phone with the customer service person from the window replacement company for like the fourth time and we still can't get this order right and feeling like I'm spending most of my day off trying to fix this thing and this person cannot figure this out? Did we find ourselves getting angry with that person? 
That may feel like a personal example. It is. <laughs> Jesus says to look at another person lustfully is to commit adultery in our hearts. Have we been looking lustfully at others, whether physically or emotionally, wishing we could be with someone that the Lord has not given us a romantic relationship with? Again, this is not an exercise in guilt. This is an opportunity to bring things to the surface and say, please, Lord, forgive me. Jesus says, do not repay evil with evil. Have we been harboring thoughts for revenge? Have we spoken out against another person trying to tear them down behind their backs? Have we decided, you hurt me, I'm going to find a way to hurt you with other people? It's understandable, but it's not what Jesus commands us to do. Jesus says, give to the needy in secret. And let's be honest, have we been as generous with those in need as we could be? Are there ways that we felt like maybe God is prompting us to be more generous and we simply have ignored that prompting? Jesus says, pray and forgive others their sins against you. Are we praying as we should? Do we make a commitment to get up early and pray and have we kept that? When we pray, are we forgiving those who have sinned against us? Or are we just actively praying God's judgment in their life and God's blessing in our lives? Jesus says, we cannot serve God and money. And all of us are trying to prove him wrong. Have we found ourselves in a situation where we've thought, if I just had a little more money... I would be better off. It's human. It's understandable. But it's also idolatry. Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. Are we? Are we worrying about tomorrow? Have we spent too much time thinking about the things that could go wrong in the future? Are we worried about events that haven't even happened yet? Jesus says, do not judge others. Even now, are we thinking more about the failings of a spouse or a friend or a coworker or a fellow student than our own failures? Are we hoping they're hearing this message and confessing their sins when we should be confessing ours? the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, whoever hears these words and puts them into practice, that's the person who builds their house on a rock. And there are things that Jesus has been asking us to do that we just haven't done yet. We've procrastinated. We've just not done them. Is there anything we want to say to Jesus to say, look, I'm sorry, please be patient with me. Forgive me. Hopefully the Spirit has something he's brought you here this morning to convict you of. Not for you to feel guilt or shame. 
even in anger with customer service representatives, to be able to experience God's grace and forgiveness. And the only people who don't have anything to confess are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. Those who do have something to confess. Well, we're the ones who get to see God at work in Jesus. So in just a minute, I'm going to offer a prayer of confession for all of us. If you agree with the words that I'm saying, you can just silently say them along with me in your heart. After I'm done praying, uh, those who have been waiting patiently in the back with trays of bread and cups will come and distribute those. If you're a believer in Jesus and you would like to participate in communion, nothing else has to be true except that you're willing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and confess your sins. We invite you to participate with us. If you're not sure yet, if you're a Christian, why not uh, accept this gift that Jesus has given to forgive all your sins? But if you're not ready to do that, you can simply participate with us as we sing, but let the elements pass you by uh, if you're not ready to do that. So let me offer a prayer and ask God to forgive us. Lord, you said that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, by faith, we believe your words. So, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here in this room, for those who are watching online and for even those who will see a recorded version of this, Lord, even now, we confess that we have fallen short. Lord, some of us in anger, some of us in lust, some of us in making idols of money, some of us in anxious thoughts, some of us in lack of mercy. Lord, we are sinners. Have mercy on us even though, to be honest, we don't deserve it. Jesus, we want to see you at work this month more than others. Lord, we want to see your miraculous power. We want to see what you're up to. So, Lord, would you take away the sin that is blinding our eyes? Lord, would you take away the self-righteousness that will keep us from seeing you? Lord, we acknowledge that we all have fallen short of your glory. Thank you for the forgiveness you offer in Jesus in whose name we pray.